Antoine, can you give us a brief introduction to how you became a small-time thug and a crazy hyena? As I've always repeated to the Chinese diplomats, I mean, there is a public debate in France and China. Uh, everyone is welcome to participate uh, to it, including the Chinese diplomats. So I will be uh, more than glad to interact and, and debate with them. <laughs> The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. If you have ever set foot into an international relations class, you will likely remember this great quote from the Million Dialogue in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. And yet, despite this realist mantra, strong states do not always muscle their way diplomatically to get what they want. Sometimes, they decide their best strategy is to lay low and bid for their time. This was China's policy for years after the Tiananmen massacre. But it seems we have witnessed in the past few years a shift towards a more forceful form of diplomacy, as China no longer fears strong-arming and threatening its critics. This new generation of diplomats, journalists and politicians have been dubbed the War Warriors after the 2015 movie War Warrior, where elite People's Liberation Army soldiers defeated foreign mercenaries. So. To paraphrase the great music group Bahamen, today we ask, who let the wolves out? And to answer that question, we are very glad to have Yanka Ertel and Antoine Bondaz. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, no, I'm kidding, we have no ads on this show. But if you want to show your support and help us keep building this podcast, you can really help us with small things, like rating the show, or even better, writing a review. They always put a smile on our faces. If you are new to the show, you can subscribe to and share the pod with your friends and family. Whatever you can do to help the war effort. Now, on to the show. Well, to talk about this very important issue, we are very lucky to have two expert channel watchers. Dr. Yanko Ertel is the director of the Asia program at the European Council on foreign relations and a former senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund's United States Asia program. You recently authored Home Advantage, How China's Protected Markets Threatens Europe Economic Power. Antoine Bondaz is a research fellow at the Fondation pour la Recherche Stratégique, where you cover issues relating to China and the Koreas, and you're also a professor at Sciences Po. He's also, according to the Chinese embassy in Paris, a small-time thug and a crazy hyena. So before we dive into the issue of war for diplomacy, Antoine, can you give us a brief introduction to how you became a small-time thug and a crazy hyena? (laughs) Um, So so basically, it was a very nice uh, remark and insult that the uh, Chinese embassy in France uh, addressed actually uh, to me a few, few weeks ago. Um, they reacted actually to some of my tweets and research on Taiwan, actually. Uh, and the main objective was basically to discredit my research and, and try to avoid discussing uh, the content of it. And, and that's why, according to me, it's, it's quite counterproductive, actually, uh, from the Chinese diplomats to do so. First, it's uh, unprecedented to attack someone only on his person and not on his uh, work and research, actually. Um, and, and second, it has been very counterproductive because the, the, the answer from the French authorities, from the political class, from the media, from the academia, 
has been unanimous actually in condemning uh, the, these remarks. So, so very counterproductive. Uh, it's not changing anything. Actually, it's not impacting me in any way in my research. And um, as I've always repeated to the Chinese diplomats, I mean, there is a, a public debate in France on China. Uh, everyone is welcome to participate uh, to it, including the Chinese diplomats. So I will be uh, more than glad to interact and, and debate with them. Fantastic. Thank you for those few words, Antoine. So let's dive into the topic of war for diplomacy. First of all, can you define what war for diplomacy in the first place and how does it manifest itself across Europe? And when did it start? And to some extent, how does it contrast with China's more traditional diplomatic posturing? Uh, Janka first. Yeah, so thank you very much for, for having me on here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with, with Antoine and with you guys. So maybe if we define Wolf Warrior Diplomacy first, it's like the, the name in and of itself um, it dates back to a movie um, that was shot, um, at a, a Chinese movie um, that was shot in a kind of US action film uh, style um, with uh, Chinese uh, being like Chinese uh, being the hero of it, and it has this kind of various aggressive but also very active tone of defending um, of defending China. Um, so I think this is this is where the name comes from. But uh, what we are seeing right now is not something that is entirely new. This is not something that hasn't been there before. In its kind of extent, it is new. Um, and over the course of the pandemic, um, it, you have seen these massive efforts in controlling the narrative um, around the pandemic, around the coronavirus, uh, and that has certainly led to uh, a spike in, in this kind of activity. Um, but the, while the term itself wasn't present before, um, the, the policies of um, picking off um, individual countries or individual players and um, being more assertive with them uh, diplomatically is something that we've seen um, in the past as well. This is not something that we haven't seen before at all. Yeah, I think what is quite important is that um, it's, it's a new trend, but uh, it's not a new one. I, in the sense that uh, you have lots of reform, lots of policies that uh, basically hinted to such a, a more aggressive uh, rhetoric from, from the Chinese diplomats. And I think we need to, to get back in time, at least to uh, 2013, uh, when Xi Jinping, in a major conference on external propaganda and ideology, uh, asked actually to, to the Chinese authorities and the diplomats, but only the diplomats, to, I quote, methodically carry out external propaganda, uh, innovate in this field, make efforts to create new expressions, new concepts, and new examples to, I quote, better tell China's story and make China's voice heard. Uh, so this is basically the start of major uh, reform program in China, uh, the reform of the public TV, CCTV that became CGTN abroad, uh, the massive use of uh, media platform, including YouTube, starting in 2018, 2019. Uh, more recently, the, the massive use of the social uh, network, including uh, Twitter. Um, and, and, and just to give you some, some very basic data, uh, in, in July 2020, uh, you had at least 150 official accounts, Twitter accounts, uh, linked to uh, Chinese embassies, ambassadors, consulates, consuls, um, and of course the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Among these 150 Twitter accounts, more than two-thirds had been created in the previous 12 months. So it's something that started mostly in 2019 
much before the pandemic uh, and, and usually in link with the, the unrest and the demonstration in Hong Kong. Second, so more Twitter accounts and Twitter accounts that uh, are much more active. To give you just one data, the activity of the Twitter accounts of the Chinese embassy in France increased by 1,000 percent between December 2019 to May 2020. And the objective is quite clear. The Chinese authorities want to make sure that the Chinese narrative is being discussed abroad and, if possible, becomes mainstream abroad. So, so that's basically the objective. Uh, and the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy is just a tool to achieve that end. Um, if it's counterproductive, Yes, if you focus on the public opinion and if you believe that the objective is to seduce and to convince the foreign audience, it is not counterproductive if the objective is mostly a domestic one, that is to portray the image of the Chinese diplomacy as a key uh, institution, let's call it this way, to defend what uh, is called more and more in China, the so-called national dignity, uh, to ask for the respect of the Chinese uh, as, a, as a nation and as a culture, etc. Uh, and this is not counterproductive in that way. And you can see it in the, uh, I, I'm, like the, the public opinion survey in China, you can see it in the press. Uh, the objective, once again, is to portray an image of strength, of power abroad, much more than to seduce uh, the foreign audience. So, Yanka, what do you make of this argument that this war for diplomacy is mainly for domestic consumption. Uh, is there something we're missing? Maybe this uh, aggressive form of diplomacy uh, works up sometimes. You know, maybe Antoine's case is one of the exceptions where it completely backfires. But are there cases where this muscular form of diplomacy works abroad, or is it only creating bad blood and it's only there for domestic reasons? Yanka. Well, I wouldn't say it's it's only creating bad blood. It also creates a degree of um, it scares off. Um, and it does raise a problem, particularly among smaller countries or individuals um, that are just not capable of fully taking on this kind of uh, anger that is directed against them. And it does have an impact on policy choices. Um, one could argue that um, you know, some of these instances should have uh, led to a much stronger joint European response, pushing back, really clearly pointing out. But that's not necessarily what happened did happen is that many of the countries have been taking on these challenges um, individually. Um, I think the Swedish case is a good example here, where there's a lot of bullying going on um, from, the, from the Chinese embassy in Sweden. Um, but at the same time, you know, Sweden is not really calling for a joint European response here, not calling really for assistance from other countries. Everyone is sort of still trying to deal with this um, individually. And that's, that's quite remarkable, because I do think that um, what we are seeing here is from the Chinese side, just as Antoine says, mainly directed at a domestic audience, but it is taking these kind of side effects into um, account and is using them for broader political purposes. And I do think that we, like, we need to look into what the reasons behind this behavior are. And while it's really difficult to depict that always like very clearly, and there are probably it's like there's no monocausal answer here. There's no like one answer why the Chinese side has decided to shift gears on its diplomacy. But there is a mix of kind of this, the, the, a certain degree of, of, of panic, a certain degree of um, consciousness, of self-consciousness, of being very confident about um, the, the Chinese approach. 
anger about the way um, the Chinese leadership has been treated, by, particularly by the by the U.S. side, but also this kind of um, seizing the moment of opportunity here um, with regard to kind of taking a calculated risk when it comes to dealing with um, with the Europeans, um, because that is part of a broader strategy to just keep the Europeans um, non-aligned with the United States, um, keep them in um, in a certain degree of suspense, and make sure that they're not fully uniting against each other. We see in public opinion that there is a backlash, but not necessarily in government behavior. I'm sitting here in Berlin, um, and we are looking at government consultations towards the end of the month, bilateral government consultations between Germany and China. Um, the mood between the governments seems to be still okay. So, so I think this we have to be very nuanced here in what this means. Yeah, yeah. The follow-up to what uh, Yanka said, and I, I fully agree with with her. Actually, um, the key question for the Chinese authorities is to know whether that. Uh, Backfire in, in terms of public opinion in translating or not into public policies. And so far, there is no translation. Um, that uh, impact on the public opinion is unprecedented. Let's be clear. If we get the, the data from the Pew Research Center in Spain, Germany, Canada, the Netherlands, the US, the UK, South Korea, Sweden, or even Australia, the negative views on China have reached their highest level. In the 12 years that uh, that institute, the Pew Research Center, uh, has been pulling in these countries. So, so clearly, it's very uh, negative impact. Yet, you do not have so far a clear shift in terms of public policies. Um, you you may say you have one in Australia, in the U.S., etc., but then it would be unrelated uh, to that kind of drop in terms of uh, favorable opinion. Uh, to, to, to China. The key question now in Europe is that whether in the short term and in the medium term, that shift in terms of public opinion will translate into additional pressure on uh, the uh, po political authorities and translates eventually into a new public policies. And if you take the example of France, something that has been striking in 2020 is that if the French government has been very vocal on the issue of Xinjiang and human rights abuses uh, in the uh, autonomous region, that's mostly because the civil society mobilized. That's mostly because you had that grassroots level, if you can call it this way, uh, mobilization from NGOs, from some politicians, but mostly from the youth people that forced actually uh, authorities to take a hard steps. So the key question, once again, is whether that shift into public opinion will translate into mobilization by the civil society, pressure on the public authorities, and at the end of the day, into new public policies. But but that's why I fully agree with Yanka when she said that we have to be very nuanced about um, the, the how counterproductive if the uh, warfare diplomacy. I wanted to, I wanted to, um, uh, to follow up here on on what Antoine on, on what Antoine uh, suggests is this sort of like lag uh, between you know the policies that we're seeing the EU implement in terms of the, the conflict with China and the, the, the actual fa facts on the ground, right? What a lot of scholars are calling the the non kinetic warfare uh, that that you know autocratic states are increasingly waging. And Antoine, you seem to suggest that that the EU is yet to fully take stock of. Uh, this new set, this new set of facts on the ground, and we're yet to see, we're yet to see that reflected uh, on on EU policy. And I wanted to focus specifically on, uh, you know, the, the the way that we've discussed China uh, over, say, the, the past five to ten years in Europe has really come 
almost primarily through the lens of human rights, right? Things that we object as Europeans, things that are happening inside China, things that China influences uh, worldwide, and things that we as Europeans find reprehensible. And it, I wonder to what extent that has come at the expense of a broader understanding of the conflict, one that the Americans have oftentimes uh, criticized in Europe, which is not being able to see how uh, the economic abuses and the human rights abuses really are embedded in, in one another, really they interpenetrate one another. And uh, the EU was perhaps unknowingly really an actor and a player in the trade wars and the, the rebalancing of the, the trade uh, postures between Donald Trump's America and China. And I wonder, um, um, you know, you, you've got a you've got a fascinating report out. Just I believe last week, Janka, you've you've got this new ECFR paper that looks at what you call the protected home market advantage. That really is one of the the really one of the points of contention uh, in the investment agreement that the EU passed uh, late last year in a really rushed uh, manner. Uh, one of the one of the things that uh, European companies had been complaining for for a long time was the the sense that. Chinese companies were systematically advantaged by, by domestic policies and that there was a need for a broad investment agreement to rebalance uh, those reports. Uh, and, um, you, know, I, 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 um, you know, I wonder how, how would you assess uh, the balance between the, the human rights abuses and the economic abuses and the way that we're tackling China? I mean, it, it does seem like COVID is uh, enhancing that embeddedness. Uh, when I think of, for instance, the way that China went about the COVID disinformation campaigns, right? Trying to um, trying to erase and really trying to whitewash its role in in helping the virus spread. That, that's I think one specific instance where you see the two coming together. The um, the reason that the the kind of um, uh, stitched the, these disinformation campaigns was that they wanted to whitewash the economic uh, damage from the virus, but that comes. Uh, you know, tied with all of a whole host of human rights issues as well, and, and the way that those disinformations have also uh, have also uh, concerned you know uh, Xinjiang and whatnot. So I wonder how do you how do you assess the balance of the two, and do you think there's an issue in the way that the EU still hopes to compartmentalize the two when the two the two prongs of the problem are more connected than we tend to think? And I want to start with Janka, and hopefully you can prime some of the aspects in, in your report. Yeah, so thank you very much. So I think this is, um, we have to maybe untangle that a little bit. Um, what is important is that there is a difference in kind of the very comprehensive systemic rivalry, um, strategic rivals um, for global power approach of the United States, and the still relatively compartmentalized approach that the European Union is still taking when it comes to, uh, to China. And that's not just the EU, or particularly not the EU's former member states themselves, that wish for this distinction to exist. Um, the European member states, and particularly Germany, where I sit, um, wants to be able to say, we have a human rights dialogue with China, um, where we are um, tackling all the difficult questions that are on the agenda. And I think to be very fair, um, Germany has been one of the countries that has been very uh, straightforward when it comes to human rights questions, has been um, helping um, human rights lawyers, has been helping on individual cases, the German Chancellor has been very outspoken on, on the human rights situation in various instances. At the same time, Germany has been making, German companies have been making a lot of money in China, and they wish to continue to do so in the future. Uh, and that is, uh, and, and then the, the kind of the last element is kind of the, the diplomatic relationship where there is this general notion that we can cooperate with China, this um, holy trinity of, of EU-China relations uh, that has become this systemic rival, but also economic competitor, but also negotiation partner. 
uh, trinity that we've been working with, which means sort of in the end, nothing, because it's all of the above. It's kind of a, you know, everyone can pick whatever they would like approach to it. And so I think the Europeans are increasingly realizing that despite the fact that they would like for relations to be that way, China doesn't see it that way. China sees the relationship in a very comprehensive fashion and will um, retaliate uh, or will kind of address the issues across the board. And so I do think that we are increasingly going to see um, these, um, these agendas just kind of um, colliding. We saw that very much um, around the Xinjiang sanctions um, that the EU has imposed on China. Um, this was the first time that human rights-related sanctions were imposed since 1989. It was quite a step for the European Union to take. You had unity among all 27 member states to go ahead with this, which is quite remarkable as well, given that we we're always kind of saying all the Europeans are so ununited when it comes to China. So it was possible to have these sanctions. Very modest, very limited in scope. But re there was a fierce reaction from the Chinese side um, that attacked um, the, the Europeans in, in kind of signing on to this coordinated approach of sanctions with the US and UK and Canada. And so I think this is something where we are seeing um, that this is putting companies, European companies, in a difficult bind because um, the response was also that there were boycotts, coordinated boycott um, uh, calls in Chinese state media against European companies. And increasingly, European companies are going to find themselves having to decide whether they are going to be willing to take into or whether they are going to willing to going to be willing to um, live with the backlash that they're receiving at home or risk their China business. Um, and this is going to be different for each sector. There's going to be different solutions for each of these companies, um, but it's going to get harder and harder. This magical third way that the Europeans have somehow decided that they would love to take when it comes to China, I just don't see it existing. And so I think for, for Europe, it is really um, high time to get very realistic what the areas are in which one can move forward with China um, and how um, a kind of for the, the decoupling tendencies that are emanating from Beijing, uh, they have to be incorporated in a new strategy. Yeah, if I, if I may add um, some, some elements. Um, the human rights violation in China are nothing new, of course. Uh, but the situation still is quite different now. First thing is that human rights violation, especially in Xinjiang, are much more severe now than they were five or ten years ago. Second one is that they are, even though not perfectly, but much more documented than a few years ago. Uh, and third, they are much more openly criticized as uh, a few years ago. Um, on that very specific topic, on um, international criticism um, to, to, toward China, uh, I think the EU has been for quite some years um, quite not exemplary, but at least has, has been trying to take the lead. When I say the EU, it's not necessarily, of course, the Commission. But if you see the resolution voted and adopted at the European Parliament, if you remember that in late 2019, uh, it's Ilham Toti who got awarded with the Sakharov Prize on Human Rights by the European Parliament. Uh, if you see all of the questions raised by either MPs or MPs in national assemblies, etc., the, the European parliamentarians uh, have been very active. It has started to translate into public policies much more recently, as, as Yanka perfectly said. What is new also is that uh, before closing or at least turning a blind eye to human rights violation in China uh, was fine, or at least 
uh, criticizing openly China was still fine. Right now, many companies, many countries uh, have to consider that openly criticizing China will have uh, detrimental effects to their interests. If you see the example of what's going on with the ban on, on export or imports of cotton from Xinjiang uh, and the reaction in China on the de facto boycott of some big European brands, uh, the message being said by the Chinese authorities is quite clear. It's either you turn a blind eye to what's happening, uh, including in your activities outside of China, including into other markets, speak in the US and European markets, or you will face some retaliation and some economic sanctions. So I think that changes the equation. And China, de facto, is the one asking us to choose between values, ethics, and uh, profits. So that's something that was not happening uh, a few years ago. Then what is also very important is that in Europe, many have a debate on, on what could be done to change Chinese policies in China on human rights, etc. I think that that's a wrong debate. We all agree that the Europeans have very little leverages to force China to change its domestic policies. And I'm not sure this is a main objective. But not being able to really influence Chinese policies does not mean we have to stay complicit or at least do nothing. This is one thing to change China policies. And once again, I think it's, it's uh, very complicated and, and most of the time unrealistic. Uh, but it does not mean that we cannot change our European policies on China. And that's the main question today. The question is not whether we can successfully change China, but what we can do in Europe to change um, our China policy. Uh, and on forced labor, etc., uh, you then have two questions or two debates. The first one is what can we do to end forced labor in China? It's very complicated. And China is not going to commit to either ratify the International Labor Organization Convention on Forced Labor or do anything, especially now and especially before the 100th anniversary of the party. But it does not mean that the EU can do nothing. The EU can do a lot in the way we interact with China, in the way our consumers behave, in the way we can directly or indirectly benefit from forced labor or, or other uh, issues. And that should be the debate in Europe. It's not only, once again, about changing China. It's how we adapt, how we change our policies to better fit not only our interests, but also the values we promote. Because if we do not do it in Europe, then you have no legitimacy to go abroad and promote values, etc. So let's talk about a little bit about the relationship between China and Europe on, on economics, which we've touched a little bit so far. China has become the main trading partner of the EU in 2020. Despite the pandemic, we saw imports and exports from China rising, which means that nowadays 22.4% of the EU's imports come from China. Now, what we saw quite uh, painfully in the first few months of a pandemic is how dependent we were on Chinese products in a whole wealth of areas from masks to drugs. And, you know, we're not even talking about rare earth materials, for example. And I want to make a bit of a parallel with Australia. Now, obviously, Australia is a smaller country, but its reliance on the Chinese economy 
had been growing for decades. And now, overnight, this dependence is now being exploited by Beijing, who has slapped tariffs on Australian goods on a whole range of products over its support for an international inquiry into China's handling of COVID. Could we be sleepwalking as Europeans, on a, maybe on a smaller scale, but sleepwalking into a similar form of dependency? Janka. Well, so I think, first of all, we have to kind of set the record a bit straight on the Australia example. Obviously, the form of China's economic coercion that it has chosen to deal with the political issues that it has with Australia um, are quite drastic um, and are um, unreasonable um, from that regard. Um, some of them are not necessarily illegal um, because they're borderline still within WTO frameworks. But the, uh, the impact on the overall Australian economy it's not been, I mean, it should not be overrated. I think it's really important um, that just because there is like, there's import bans on, on Australian wine doesn't mean a collapse of the Australian economy. I think that's very, very important to, to be clear here. And then I do think that while saying that, we have to be very clear that dependencies in other areas that could be exploited and not in terms of like an overall big um, sanctions style approach from the Chinese side, but just being able to threaten to cut off Europe from certain supplies that it is growing more dependent on has an enormous potency. Um, so I do think that we, we, uh, while we are making choices at the moment for long-term strategic investments, particularly in strategic infrastructure, and I'm thinking about the 5G example here, um, we have to always keep that in mind. There has been this kind of logic in Europe that China has no interest in doing that when it comes to Europe, that the Chinese leadership is not interested in kind of using its economic power for coercive uh, measures. And that's just simply not true anymore. We're seeing ample examples now of China being willing to just do just that. Um, so there are, just in overall terms, um, European countries, EU member states, um, China trade is still not as relevant for them, or not nearly as relevant. For them um, as it is the kind of inter-European trade or the US trade. When it comes to Germany, who is the most kind of intertwined with the Chinese market, has an enormous, um, enormously strong economic relationship, uh, we're still talking like 7% of external trade, um, China in comparison to 60% roughly within the EU. So just to get the numbers straight here. But there is obviously a trajectory here, and this is something that we tried to outline also in the in the Home Advantage report, is that um, there is a tendency that we are competing in um, strategic industries with Chinese companies that are kind of beefed up players on steroids that are um, because they have the massive home market that they can rely on and that kind of supports them, allows them massive spending in R&D, allows them massive spending on just producing better products as well at lower prices um, and at similar or comparable quality at times. Um, and those are competing then with, with European companies on an international scale. And we could be on the losing end of this. Uh, and if we then lose companies um, because they're just not competitive anymore on the global market um, and we lose access to European technology and innovation capacity because of that in strategic sectors, including renewable energies or um, the telecommunications sector, then that could be a problem in the long term. Just to kind of make it very graphic and very clear, if we cannot produce, if we cannot um, acquire um, renewable technology in the wind sector or solar industry, etc., or hydrogen without Chinese tech anymore, then the dependence will grow massively 
So it is in Europe's interest to diversify its supply, to diversify um, also the kind of dependence on the Chinese market, to avoid this kind of risk accumulation that has taken place because of the relationship and because um, the, the opportunities for, China's, for, for business in China had just been so good for such a long time. I think we're seeing that shift in the industry. We're seeing that realization in the industry. It just takes a bit of time to wean um, the companies off the uh, the the kind of dependence on the on the Chinese market or the promise of the Chinese market much more so sometimes than the actual Chinese market. Um, and that's something that needs to be strategically addressed by governments. This is not an issue for individual companies. This is a structural issue that has to have a political and not necessarily just an economic solution. Yeah, I think I, I would say that um, many Europeans are kind of uh, sleepwalking on the many challenges caused by China. And at the same time, they are daydreaming about the real influence um, of China and our dependency uh, on China. Uh, to get just some, some data, um, Australian exports to China by in summer 2020 uh, were about 48% of the total of exports, 48% only toward China. In France in 2020, it was only 4%. 48% from Australia, 4%. From, from, from France. So you have first a huge difference in terms of dependency between countries such as South Korea, Taiwan, and especially Australia, and uh, European economies. Because uh, in most of the data, uh, people focus on outside of EU trade when German trade is mostly and primarily with his uh, EU neighbors. Second, if you take the question of the FDI and Chinese FDI uh, in Europe. In France, Chinese FDI uh, in 2019 created less job than Canadian FDI or Spanish FDI. And much less, of course, than Swiss, German, British, or American FDI. But in the public debate, is anyone saying that Canadian investment in France or in Europe, Spanish investment, Swiss investment, UK investment are the key? No one. So I think there is a lot of illusions in the public debate and the Chinese authorities, uh, to be uh, clear, have been very, very efficient. Uh, and then that I would say that the same question about the Chinese FDI in Europe. Um, they are very important. They increased a lot until 2016, 2017, before dropping massively, etc. But um, just one data. Um, you get the French example. In 2019, the Chinese FDI in France created less job than the Canadian FDI or than the Spanish FDI in France. Uh, but who is talking in the French public debate about Canadian uh, or uh, Spanish investment? No one. So I think there is a lot of illusion uh, on the Chinese, let's say, predominance in the Chinese, in the French uh, economy. There is a lot of, um, let's say, um, as I say, I mean, many are daydreaming about the real influence um, of China. It does not mean that there are not challenges. Of course, there are. But it means they were much less reliant on China uh, than when we believe. That's the same if you get the French companies or European companies and um, China. Most of the time, you will interview companies that are either based in China or exporting to China. But many companies 
that are not in China, that are not exporting to China, are de facto impacted by some Chinese policies. And most of the people are not talking about them, are not researching on them. And most of the time, we don't have a comprehensive view on not only the Chinese influence on uh, the, the, the French and European economy, uh, but also the impact of Chinese economic decisions on the world economic system, the world economic actors in Europe. And I think that's something that, that should be addressed. Uh, and one of the consequences is not only that there are plenty of challenges, for sure, that uh, our dependency on China is maybe less acute than what we believe, but also that we have a lot of leverages. Um, as we all know, the European Union is, is the, the biggest market in the world, uh, that the first trade partner of China, that's um, today um, de facto indispensable economic partner to China, uh, and we have plenty of leverages. The problem is not the one of leverages. The problem is the one of the political will to action these leverages. And that's something that should be discussed at the EU level. Once again, we have plenty of leverages. It's not a problem of means. It's a problem of the willingness and the difficulty, of course, to find a cohesion to use these means to address economic imbalances, etc. And that's something we are not discussing yet, I would say, uh, at the European level. Yeah, maybe I can just, just I, I agree fully with Antoine, and I'd just like to add, I think this is again the realization that has to sink in, is that if we understand, if Europe understands its market power, um, then the, the options that are on the table are so different. Um, if it understands its political power, the options are so different. Um, but we have... Continue, we continue to stick in this narrative that says, oh, we're getting squeezed between the Chinese and the US, it's terrible, What you know, as if Europe had no agency at all. And I do think it's really the, the first step in addressing the China challenge for Europe is to get out of that mindset and to get the head in the right space that says, well, we can actually do a lot here, we can exert pressure as well. We have to act collectively and we have to put long-term or short-term economic gains for individual companies or countries um, aside and look at like long-term prosperity and long-term strategic goals. Right. We're, we're nearing the end of our time, but there's perhaps one, uh, one very brief question and then we'll, we'll end on a, on a sort of a broader one. Uh, but the brief, the brief question I'd like to ask is, is something of a different way to approach the same set of issues we've been discussing which is essentially looking at how they, they, they crystallize in specific parts of the continent, specific regions. Um, you know, it, it looks like the, the sort of hard-edged economic hand that China's playing and that you both uh, very expertly described um, is, is very palpable and visible in specific parts of our, of our continent. Uh, it, it so happens that uh, countries that, have, that, have, that carry a record of financial shortages, infrastructure shortages that may even have had you know rough time with COVID, are really on China's radar, and I'm thinking particularly uh, of one specific region that we that we've been discussing a lot these days, which is the V4. But even broader than than the Visegrad uh, countries, we could even uh, uh, lump in Greece, Italy, the Balkans, countries of that nature. And I I wonder you know whether whether you've you've been following the region at all, and what you make of, uh, for instance, uh, zeroing specifically on vaccines. Uh, and when you think of a country like Hungary, for instance, which is 
also, which also happens to have a different uh, vaccine procurement strategy, but we've seen them uh, come a lot closer to kind of China's global vaccine strategy, uh, obviously lumped, lumped in with a whole host of issues with the uh, access of Chinese universities to Hungary with uh, a new uh, renewed military cooperation with between Hungary and the Chinese regime and a, a whole host of issues that are raising a lot of eyebrows in Brussels and not just Hungary specifically, but the V4 in Central Europe. Is that a region you're following closely and what are your concerns that uh, maybe through through regions of, of, of that sort, China could be getting access into the European uh, the European space in sort of nefarious ways? We'll start maybe with Antoine and then turn back to Janka. Um, I think the Chinese influence in Eastern Europe has been very overestimated for, for the last few years. If you see in terms of, of economy, of political network, etc., of course, China is, is, is an emerging actor and, and is an actor that 20 years ago had no influence at all. Uh, but Chinese current influence, it's quite limited. Uh, it's very visible when you have countries like Hungary or else blocking a resolution or a decision at the EU Council level uh, because of that decision would be detrimental to Chinese interest. And then you can see, of course, the Chinese influence. Uh, but overall, I would say that that influence has been quite limited. And what the Chinese have been underestimated for years is the proximity between these countries and the US. At the end of the day, uh, the transatlantic relation between Eastern Europe and the US is much more important than the relation between these countries and China. Uh, and, and you can see it because over the last few years, uh, from Poland to the Baltic countries, from Slovakia to Czech Republic, many countries have taken a much harder stance on China than some Western European uh, countries. The second aspect, and, and I think that uh, even though we need, we, we are both with Yonka working, of course, mostly on China, but um, the, the question at the end of the day is what is the EU doing? Uh, it's one thing to blame China, uh, it's something else to address our own shortages. And um, I really like part of, of President Macron's speech in 2019, the, the speech to the ambassador, in which he reminded everyone that China had been a, very, a real diplomatic genius in playing our division and weakening us. And this is the problem. The problem is we are part of the problem. China is not the only problem. Uh, the problem is the lack of cohesion. If the political opportunity that some countries may seize for, for whatever reason. And this is something we need to address. And uh, we won't be able to face China. We won't be able to face the many challenges posed by China and other countries if we are not able on our own within Europe to address our own shortages um, and, and to, to, of course, address the issue that at the end of the day, if we do not move in a very unified and cohesive uh, way, we won't be able to achieve anything. And that's something that should be addressed much more than only criticizing China. Because once again, this is very important to, 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 to see and to be aware of the issue coming from outside of Europe. But we also need to address, of course, all of the issues and all of the shortcomings we have within Europe. And maybe if I can provocatively add here, um, one could argue that Europe has, when it comes to the China dimension, a bigger Germany problem than it has a V4 problem. 
um, you know, it has a bigger Germany problem than it actually has a Poland problem in this regard. That's, I think Antoine has, has pointed that out really nicely. We have to be very careful with taking like entire regions together in their perspectives. And these are very nuanced positions. So I would say Hungary is an outlier. Um, but you can't even say Southeastern Europe because the differences in the approach to China and also in the relationship to China between Greece or Bulgaria or Romania are just super different from the Czech Republic or Lithuania for that matter. Um, and I think we, we just have to be very clear that we don't just kind of lump um, countries together and say, well, this is the Eastern European approach to China, or this is Southeastern Europe, uh, European approach to China. It just doesn't work anymore. Um, there's a lot of nuance in stock here. Um, there's a lot of changes that are coming about. Um, what has not changed so much is actually Berlin's position, um, being extremely moderate and extremely careful when it comes to China and not taking a lead. And quite frankly, um, for Berlin to ask for, you know, the, the 17 plus one format to be abolished and to not be there anymore because uh, it, it has a, it, it creates problems for European unity. And at the same time, going ahead with bilateral government consultations is, I think, a problem and is, is seen as increasingly hypocritical from other EU member states. So I think this is particularly a job for Germany to take on a proper leadership role here as well and to lead a bit by example more than it has in the past. There, there is one final note that we'd love to end on just because it sort of adds a whole new dimension to our conversation. So, and Antoine was sort of alluding to parts of this earlier. Uh, there seems to be a whole new dimension to the to the China question for us Europeans, which is how the regime is, is uh, very shrewdly exploiting cultural wars and kind of the internal divisions in our culture. Uh, uh, not not uh, not exclusively as a smokescreen for its own abuses at home, but uh, quite recently they've started doing this in a very offensive way. Where we we saw, uh, I, I believe this was uh, last month, the, the um, a lot of the diplomatic wires have started to urge countries such as France and the UK to address racism and things of this nature, discrimination. And I wonder, you know, Antoine, you were sort of uh, tangentially alluding to this with the role of corporations, because if, 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 if we ask the question of, you know, what's this, what's this um, woke washing, as, as it's been called, what, what's the effectiveness of it? How, how is China uh, leveraging it as, a, as, as part of its broader, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, posturing uh, in, in Europe. And, and when you ask that question, it seems like corporations are really playing a role. Uh, they've, a lot of the global American corporations have been very skittish with the China question, the Hong Kong question. They've obviously got a lot of interest in, in, in that neck of the woods. So what's, what's, uh, how do you envision this issue evolving? Do you think China is going to be um, uh, uh, heightening this sort of cultural war on Europe, do you think, how, how do you how do you envision this to evolve? We'll, we'll start maybe with Antoine and then turn back to Janka. Yeah, I, I think they, they will, of course, increase the pressure on cultural wars, but also on some environmental issues. And we've seen it recently with the, the way the Chinese government has launched a massive campaign to criticize uh, the Japanese decision to release some water from the Fukushima plant um, to the Pacific Ocean. And, and you can see that in the Chinese uh, public communication, the main objective was to, to, to kind of side, not side, but raise awareness within the Western public opinion and try to benefit from that environmental awareness in Europe to criticize 
Japan and de facto to isolate Japan. So I think on cultural wars, on, envy, uh, on the green issues and climate change issues, etc., China will keep on doing it. Uh, but, but what is the most important, once again, is that um, we need to be aware of our own imperfection, our own shortcomings. We need to acknowledge them, to discuss them, to do it publicly. That's something that uh, China is sometimes criticizing us for not doing. We are doing it and we need to make it known. Uh, we make mistakes. Uh, we take step backs sometimes. We've had a lot of challenges in our recent history. Um, and, and we need to address all of these issues. That's something that China cannot do. If we stop, let's say, being who we are, if we stop being progressive, if we stop being very democratic, if we stop acknowledging our shortcomings, China will benefit from it. And uh, let's say double standards from China uh, will be fueled, uh, if I may put it this way, uh, by our own shortcomings. And in the so-called systemic rivalry between the EU and China, uh, we need to make very good use of our democratic if I may call it this way, uh, identity. The, the more we openly discuss it, the more we acknowledge our imperfection, the more we tried to have a more perfect union, let's say, within the European Union, or a more perfect uh, society within our national states, um, the more immune, if I may call it this way, we will be uh, against the Chinese uh, attack and criticism. And that's something we need to keep doing. Yeah, I think there's very little for me to add. Uh, Antoine has summarized that really nicely. I do think that we have to look back at our strengths uh, and, and see um, how, how we can have a positive vision also for the world and, and not think so defensively when it comes to China. It sometimes does seem that we're building this gigantic challenge um, that, that we, we, it seems to be like unsurmountable for, for, the, for the Europeans to handle and to deal with. Whereas if we actually concentrate a little bit of what we're really good at, then this is something that we can tackle. Um, but we need a good story for ourselves as well to have the kind of confidence and positive attitude um, towards being an integral part of shaping the future um, with a, a very kind of European, um, with the European footprint as well. Um, and not necessarily just follow into that, fall into that trap that says, oh, there's a great power competition and we're not part of it. Um, I do think that that's the biggest mistake the Europeans can do. Um, but I do see some enthusiasm also among Europeans to just kind of be um, be out front and, and say, okay, so we, we are part of this. We can shape, um, we can shape a future here. Um, and if we want um, a rules-based international order to survive, if we want our values to survive, then it's time to fight for them a bit. Thanks a lot, Yanka. Thanks a lot, Antoine, for this fascinating conversation. Well, we covered the war for diplomacy, as it is called, its impact, its evolution, and we showed the extent of the relationship and the rivalry between Europe and China and how it's going to evolve over the next few years. Thanks a lot to both of you, and uh, see you next week. So we were uh, we were delighted to have two distinguished uh, China watchers for this uh, episode, uh, really kind of focused around the wolf warrior diplomacy issue, but really spilling over into a range of topics. So what did you think of Janka and Antoine's uh, answers um, in this episode, Francois? Yeah, it was very interesting because they have a lot of uh, 
um, expertise on the issue. And, and Antoine was a great guest to have because he was a, very much a direct target of this war for diplomacy in the past few weeks when he was called a, a, a small-time thug and a crazed hyena. Um, first of all, these things also really funny. Like, where did they find them? It's yeah. just uh, like, Oslo, can we can we can we uh, stop here for a second? Can we have you walk our audience through uh, what this um, expression, this turn of phrase of petit frappe? It's yeah. it, I think it's 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 really offensive when you when you hear the expression in French in ways that are not necessarily vehicled and expressed in the English yeah. pronunciation. Can you kind of get into what? With that, how that was received in France. That's a good point because uh, small-time fuck seems a bit strange, but petite frappe is a lot more aggressive in French. Um, I think you would call the petite frappe, you know, some kind of um, young gangster, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these you know drug dealers you'd hear about in those documentaries on on, on some of French banlieues, you know, stuff, stuff like that. So it was it was very very strange and very aggressive, and you know, increased hyena sounds like I don't know. It, it, Yen Fol is just, I don't know, it's just very strange, very strange insults, to be perfectly honest. It sounds like they, they found a, a 19th century dictionary of insults or something. <laughs> but um, it, it also, uh, do, you, do you not think, would you agree that it also uh, speaks to China's uh, growing um, finesse in leveraging kind of the cultural subtleties of the countries where I, I, I where disagree. It, I think it, it was, it, there was no finesse here whatsoever. It was another good example. Um, the other day, I forget which country, I think it's the Chinese embassy in Ireland. They made this tweet where people, there were, there were, um, uh, there's a very complicated parallel the, the, the post was trying to make between the Aesop fable of um, the, the wolf and, and the lamb. And in the end, it was very complicated. And in the end, they said, well, actually, you know, uh, China's a wolf, but no, we're not the wolf because we're strong. We're, we are we are the wolf, we're the lamb. So it was really confusing, very complicated. <laughs> it, it felt to me like someone who had a little bit of exposure to, to European culture, the kind of very strange model way, who was doing this to get likes back at home in, in, in China. So it's very strange. I don't think there's much finesse. I think the point that was made is this is largely for domestic consumption. It's to show to, to the Chinese that uh, the time where the Chinese would uh, bow down to to Europe is finished now. They are they are proud. Sure. And, um, they, they, you yeah, know, one of the things that, that really strikes. I mean, in, in this particular uh, respect. Uh, non, mais le problème c'est que j'ai ouais j'ai je peux réagir je peux réagir un peu ouais. vite fait. So, so yeah, but I, I think it's just not that much finesse, if anything. Well, that's a really interesting uh, point, uh, and and also a related one to the to the um, to your other question. I believe you're you're asking this to well, you're asking this to both of them, but. The, the whole question around kind of where's the audience for these gimmicks? Where's the audience for these hard-edged, uh, hardball uh, tactics that China plays and leverages to uh, induce really, I mean, fear in, in people? Uh, this is really what I, I sort of uh, far-fetchedly related this to the concept of non-kinetic warfare that is now in, in bog among yeah. some of the scholarly community. And they, they use it as a catch-all to define all of the different warfare methods that are not uh, that don't necessarily result in physical uh, pain or effects, right? These are like you know narratives, and these are uh, even like uh, you know drones or things of that nature. So it's it's a pretty catch-all. It's a pretty broad catch-all. But um, what I, what I thought was interesting in your question about where the audiences are is that I'm not uh, I'm not entirely convinced that the audience is at home, and if it is, it's a very elite urban audience. Yeah. 
uh, a sort of the, a, a, a segment of the Chinese Chinese elite that is acquainted with the subtleties of Western politics. I'm, I'm not sure that the kind of uh, broad Chinese uh, nation that um, the regime is building uh, its legitimacy around is necessarily attuned to any of these diplomatic uh, stats. I don't even think they even know about them, let alone care about them. They're there, these are. I think the. I think you've got to kind of introduce some of the uh, diplomatic sociology around these conflicts. These are, uh, you know, careerist, um, ambitious uh, regime uh, uh, props. Right. These are people that are very loyal to Xi Jinping. They kind of yes. build their careers around like a very, uh, a very, um, uh, uh, a very aggressive uh, notion of loyalty. Uh, and um, and and that's and that's kind of how that that's where this is coming from. I, I believe. Uh, to, to- I, I agree with with you, Jorge. But I think I think you have to be careful not to underestimate the capacity um, of Chinese media and generally foreign media mm. to amplify things which mm. seem very secondary to us. This is not China, but I'm going to give you this example, which happened um, back in November, December of of 2020. Um, it was right after the Samuel Paty's death in France. And um, Emmanuel Macron had given a speech on um, on after his death and saying we will not stop uh, doing the uh, religious caricatures. It's it's part of who we are. Blah blah blah. This speech was clearly intended for a French audience. Um, it was never intended to, to to be for the rest of the world. And you had Turkish propaganda media amplify it. And essentially, every every Turk who read the newspaper in Turkey was was mm. super aware of Macron's speech, perhaps even more than than the average Frenchman. Um, so you know, it's very easy for uh, Chinese media to amplify this or this aspect of um, of a spat. You know, I agree. I think it's probably uh, reserved to some kind of elite. But again, you know, in China is in a democracy, and so you know, if you manage to to give, give a good impression and the few um, party members in in China that matter, well, that's that's still uh, that's still relevant. So yeah, again, again, I think yeah, you know, it's for domestic audience. It doesn't have to be for the whole country, but I think it is for domestic mm-hmm. audience. Yeah, I want to. I want to turn to. Uh, to I, I want to ask you one of the questions we weren't able to get into, which which was a really inter- interesting question you came up with in terms of the yeah. economic tools of of um, of reaction that we can that we can use against China. But before that, I um I I really want to I really want really to stress uh, the contrast that I see between some of the traditional. Uh, elements of narrative that China has leveraged in terms of being kind of an under uh, an underdog right in the in the world on the world stage right this kind of empire of the middle that is uh, just beginning to reassert itself in the grander scheme of history that has been um, not just um, aggressively colonized by Western powers th- through history but also kind of uh, demoted and even uh, um, ridiculed uh, and that is now kind of uh, you know. Um, Coming back into the, the the thrust of history and kind of making making a big splash and and claiming its due right and 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 and, and uh, reclaiming its its space. So I, I I see a huge contrast between those traditional narratives and the ones that we're seeing emerge, which is almost a more um, it's almost like a fifth column version of the same. It's China in the West, China building its own narrative as uh, an actor within our diplomatic ecosystem. It's no longer. It's more uh, allogen, right? It's more like it's it's ingrained in our uh, diplomatic space and in in our, in our diplomatic discourse in, in ways that weren't the case maybe in the '90s or, or early 2000s. And uh, I want to ask you about this question you came up with, which is towards the end of our script, and we didn't we didn't have time to get into it. And yeah. 
this notion, you know, that there, there seems to be a larger conversation in which China is merely one example where, you know, we, we've seen with the fall of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union that authoritarian regimes in the new global order have found ways to, um, to uh, keep their grip on power, right? Stay, stay autocratic, stay authoritarian with, but by, by um, uh, shielding themselves from global pressures, particularly economic pressures and, and symbolic pressures. And one of the ways that we can counteract that at, per your question is by uh, kind of replicating some of the NATO mutual defense modes of action to the economic sphere. And you, you suggested that there, I think there's even uh, proposals going around of, say, you know, with some of the, um, say, the Interparliamentary Assembly on China, this this global caucus of, of lawmakers from Anglo-Saxon countries, primarily some of them European, but primarily Australian, Canadian, uh, American, New uh, from New Zealand, uh, they're coming around in this global Interparliamentary Assembly to, to concoct tools of uh, counter uh, of counter aggression against China. And you, you specifically alluded to the idea of having like retaliatory tariffs and retaliatory yeah. economic tools against China's so, uh, yeah, economic, economic Yeah, economic article five, it was called. Uh, I read it the, the, you know, a few weeks ago in the um, in Wall Street Journal. Um, it was written by a former Danish diplomat called uh, Jonas Perello Plesner. I, I do hope I haven't butchered his name. But it's, it's the idea that, you know, just like in NATO's article five, if one of the signatories of his economic article five were to be attacked uh, for economic means, you know, tariffs or whatnot, all the other signatories would have to retaliate by imposing uh, tariffs. So, you know, the example would be what's going on in Australia right now. Um, all the other signatories of this agreement would um, slap tariffs on China to dissuade China from picking one-on-one, -on -one, bullying one-on-one -on -one, um, other countries which have uh, disagreed with of, of China's um, foreign policy or domestic policy. So uh, I think it's interesting, like a concept. I no, I don't think we'll see anything like that anytime soon. Um, it's very hard to, to to do that because you know each country wants to keep uh, some kind of grip on its foreign policy, and uh, it, it would be it would be very impressive tool in 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 theory, but in practice, I don't know. It just seems very complicated. But it's, it's a good it's a good kind of idea to throw around and you know in. Uh, I'm, I'm not completely convinced that ideas lead the world, but to some extent, to some extent, they they, they shape the way policymakers policymakers think. And, and who knows? Mm -hmm. Outstanding. Well, I, I too thought it was a it was a um, it was a very worthwhile episode that allows to untangle some of the different uh, prongs of this problem, from the uh, human rights to the economics to the culture, um, and. Uh, uh, what I what I loved in terms of how each of our guests uh, uh, navigated the questions is that they didn't necessarily saw as Europe has often done these questions as being entirely separate, right? And they they've mm. they've, uh, they've gotten the memo, they've woken up to the to the to the embeddedness of these threats, and um, and I really appreciate that appreciated that in both of them and and I think you do you do appreciate it as well how Janka was also self-critical with Germany's posture yes. which is something we didn't get from John Kampner back in the early yes. days of our show <laughs> that is true but we, we did get from Marine Hardbutik if I remember correctly exactly. anyways thanks a lot for coming for another show on, on Common Decency we're very glad to have you with us don't forget, there is no Geico ads on this show. So the best way for you to support us is to support by sharing, by liking, by subscribing, by writing a review. All these small things really help for us to make sure it reaches a wider audience. So, you know, uh, no Geico ads and 
on, on the flip side, you get to write a positive review, you know, win-win. Anyways, <laughs> thank you very much, and uh, see you next week. Some people like Geico ads, Francois. Remember that. Yes, <laughs> let's, let's not, not discriminate. Anyways, <laughs> see you next week. See you next week.